eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Now at O'Reilly Auto Parts, pick up a bottle of Seafoam Motor Treatment on sale for $7.99. Plus, earn double O Rewards points. Help your engine run smoother and last longer with Seafoam Motor Treatment on sale now at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Limit supplies. See store for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Log Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Ryan Tannehill, quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, and I represent the Finsider with the PH. Hey guys, it's Friday night. It's Finsider Podcast Night. We're back to talk Miami Dolphins, preview the San Diego Chargers game, probably talk a little Jonathan Martin Richie Incognito. Um, potential coaches if changes are needed, um, all kinds of things. But at the same time, the funny part is the Dolphins are actually in the playoff hunt, and it's not that hard for them to get there. So lots of stuff to talk about, lots of ways that the conversation go tonight. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at the Finsider. Hit us up on the Finsider itself in the live thread, and you can give us a call at 347-326-9461. Uh, we'll take calls, questions, talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. Uh, obviously, you guys can hear because I have background noise from one of the two of them. But James and Duke are both in the uh, in the show right now. So, James, how are you tonight? 
It's probably my television, which I just muted, so I apologize for that. I'm well. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. And our father for the second time, Duke, how are you? I'm doing well. How's the baby? Uh, he's sleeping. I'm mean, doing, doing pretty good. How's the wife? Uh, she's at the resting <laughs> as well. She's sleeping too, so doing pretty good. Well, everybody's just the baby hanging sleeping, in there. The wife is sleeping. <laughs> yeah, he's not. It is a rule or law. Yeah, I mean he's not bad. Um, he'll wake up some during the night to to eat, but other than that, he's he's pretty good. He's not constantly up all night, so well, that's good. But um, I know Keith is going to come on at some point. He uh, he was supposed to have a show tonight, but plans changed, so he should be able to be on tonight as well. So we'll get a. Uh, Everybody on here, the the whole gang will be here to talk all things Dolphins. Um, obviously, so just, just before you start, I was going to say yeah. he was born at four seventeen Sunday, so he was uh, he, he arrived undefeated. Uh, he's undefeated, so he arrived in the Dolphins' <laughs> possession, if, I, if I'm correct. My timing's off. Game wasn't on t- television. Uh, I was at the hospital, and my wife was actually doing the um, you know the actual part of the process where she's trying to actually give birth and then uh while that was going on, you know, there's like three minutes in between contractions where she has to push and all that jazz and you guys know all you're you're familiar with all this and anybody that's out there that's been around this understands that part. But while that was going on, I, I was, you know, kinda of helping coach her and, you know, helping her breathe and all that stuff and then then when she would calm down I would turn back and watch the Bills crush the jet. So it was a good day. <laughs> So when the baby got here, the Dolphins had the ball, I'm pretty sure. That was a good way to go. Maybe it's a good amount of things. That's awesome. I, uh, I'm i sorry that you didn't get to watch the game, but um, I'm sure that uh, that wasn't exactly on your mind at the moment. <laughs> well, I was kind of uh, – it, it, was, it was kind of a two-way thing. I was like, well – you know, I, I wasn't sure what um, I didn't. I, I didn't know if CBS would get a local game, and if they did, if it would be sometimes the you know if there's not other options, they will play the Dolphins. Um, North Carolina's not exactly in their market, but sometimes they will get a, a late Dolphins game. So I thought, well, that will be good. But at the same time, I thought, well, they're going to start right about the time the baby's going to get here, and I don't know if I won't be watching watching the game. Not just because I'm be paying attention to other things, but I won't be that nervous again, so I was like, yeah, forget it. <laughs> but it wasn't, and so I ended up watching it on the uh, NFL Game Rewind after it happened. So it was it was a good game to watch on the Rewind. And uh, yeah. Cynthia's here now. Go ahead and welcome Keith to the show. Also, Keith, how are you tonight? I'm good. I've actually been here a few minutes. Uh, I was yeah. muted. So that's okay. I, can't, I I meant when he sent me the the text about his son being born. I I asked if he had named him Daniel Thomas early, and on, uh, unfortunately, I I was disappointed to find that uh, he did, in fact, did not name his child that. <laughs> um, Let's do that. I think I'm gonna go with uh, Jason Zachary, or uh, something like that for my next one. But um, okay, so. On to actual dolphin stuff, reading you guys come to the show to listen to us. Uh, obviously, there's 
all kinds of storylines and things going on with this team between everything from wanting to blow it all up and start all over to this team is still in the playoff hunt and could make the run. I mean, they're tied right now with the Jets for the sixth seed. The Jets have the the tiebreaker based on division records. I think the Jets are 2-1 and one in the division or something like that, and the Dolphins are 0-2. Oh so that that's where the playoff or the tiebreaker is right now, but the Dolphins play the Jets twice still this year. So it's not like the Jets are running away and hiding with this. The Dolphins are absolutely in control of getting to the playoffs themselves. Um, I, I it's it's funny because of how how much of a, of a dichotomy we have with the the extremes of fans wanting to blow it up versus fans saying that this is a good year. Um, And somewhere in between lies the truth. I think that in the end, this team, this team could make the playoffs. I think they probably will at least stay in contention throughout the rest of the season. Uh, My preseason nine and seven record prediction is still a possibility playoff contention is with that nine and seven record do they make the playoffs i don't know at this point but obviously there's also things that need to change with this team and i know uh you will absolutely agree i think james you'll agree and duke i know that you've been busy focusing on other things so i haven't talked to you about this at all yet but for me the main change that has to happen here is on the offense that mike sherman just it it doesn't seem like the team is responding to Sherman. Um, I think part of it is that, and I was talking to James about this just before the show, I feel like this is this is Tannehill's fourth year in Sherman's offense as a quarterback. When you consider that, you figure he's outgrown his college offense now. And that's really what it is. It just It feels like he has outgrown his college offense. And it's time for him to get a real NFL offense. And that's what I think has to happen. And whether that's keeping Philbin and getting a new offensive coordinator or blowing up the whole thing and getting a whole new system in here, I, I don't know which way is the right answer. And maybe the end of the season record and obviously the Jonathan Martin, Richie Incognito situation will play a factor into this, but maybe it's the end of the season record that determines whether or not Philbin has to go also. But I think at the minimum, we have to see Sherman changed. You know, I, I think really at a minimum, both coordinators have to go. So what Coyle's done either, considering the the uh, amount of fire firepower they have on the defensive side of the ball. You and I talked about that earlier. <clears throat> There's just there's a lot of moving parts on offense and there's a lot of really good or on defense and there's a lot of really good players. And it's like, we walk away from games where like Mike Lennon just walks all over us in the first half of that game. And I know that he played pretty well. A little bit. The fact that Seattle pretty much was completely over. I do think that there's, there's a weird, there's a weird habit for these dolphins and, I got into this debate today on my previews post or my uh, questions post with the Panthers fans because they think I'm smoking something because I think the Dolphins offense comes to play this week. Um, 
I, I, I don't know. I can't say anything in particular. I just think they do. I think they open it up. I think Tannehill just goes, you know what? I'm actually going to just rip it and see if Wallace can go get it. Um, I think that happens. I think that the problem with the Dolphins right now, and this is a coaching issue, the Dolphins play to their competition, and they, they've done it for years, but they absolutely are playing to their competition this year. If it is a big-name, big-offense team, they go out there and play most of the time, take out the uh, New Orleans game, obviously, but almost everybody plays like that in the Superdome. So they play to their competition, and it, it's infuriating. And maybe that is part of why Coyle needs to go because they just they they don't seem ready to play to the level of competition that they're facing all the time. If they no, are facing a bad offense, they play badly, and it's like they overlook the obvious things. And the worst group in our defense is the secondary, in my opinion. And that's supposed to be what he's some sort of, you know fall by the linebacker group. The only reason I'm not including them is because I've really seen a lot of good things out of Misi thus far. And I think that Deion Jordan belongs there too. But, I mean, it just seems like uh, we're, we're haunted by the, these coordinators and these coaches who can't get their uh, their group of expertise under wraps. It's like when we had Spur going to be taken care of and then anything. But I'm not a fan of Coyle mainly because it's mind-boggling. I it's mind-boggling to me the way that he's misused Deion Jordan thus far. And then he throws that crap out there about how he's hopeless against the run and everything. Then something happens, and they put him in. Uh, um, they give him more snaps against the Chargers, and lo and behold, the guy, the guy is collapsing the pocket and getting into the backfield really at will. You know, I mean, like, the thing is, I mean, he was pushing his guy back all day, which is funny because he had all these people talking about how he's only a speed rusher, and I think you're starting to see more from him. And then he was in coverage, too. I mean, the thing is, usually when you see a, a defensive lineman or a guy really that size in coverage, you think, you know, that at best you just hope that that guy can make a play or something. You feel good with Deion Jordan in coverage. Right. So, I mean, I just don't – there's no way in my mind that Coyle and Philbin and the rest of the, this team can justify the fact that Jordan hasn't been in there that much. You keep hearing he, he wasn't in enough training camp because he was hurt. I mean, who cares at this point? I mean, the thing is, I mean, or early in the season, you put him in, I mean, he was affecting Flacco. He made a play that kept uh, kept that game within reach. Uh, he was in Ryan's face. Uh, he made a big play on Matt Ryan at the end of uh, the, the uh, win against Atlanta. Even, I mean, the always an excuse. It's always a, some justification for why he's not in there. And that, for, that alone makes me think that, I mean, these guys need to go. I mean, maybe Philbin stays. I think Philbin's fate is really tied to the whole Martin Incognito thing, which seems sad right. and a little bit unfair in, in some respects because I, I know other coaches have come out and said that, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't have known if that was going on. I think Tony Dungy said that. So it's, it's a little bit unfair that his, his, fate is, his fate rests with that. But in terms of Coyle and Sherman, I think Sherman is too, uh, too set in his ways too much of a, if anything, he's only, he's like a West Coast Parcells. You know, his way is the best way, and he's not going to hear any other way. And Coyle's just a little too esoteric, too, for my for my, my liking. So I'm, I'm good with uh, just 
you know, jettisoning both those guys and just finding we need to find a legitimate quarterback developer. Hey guys, sorry about that. I got kicked into mute for some reason. <laughs> All of a sudden I got a beep in my ear and nobody apparently was hearing me. No, so I I don't really know what was going on there. Um, but yeah, I, I think and you know where my answer is if if we are if we are looking at blowing the whole thing up or give me an example of how that's not the case. I think that I, I I don't want to say his name even because I I know who is going to be the guy under consideration and I've talked to you Keith about this multiple times I I think I think honestly I think the guy that becomes one of the leading candidates is going to be Rob Ryan. I absolutely 100% think it is. And I, it may not just be a Dolphin thing. I think he's going to be a head coaching candidate after what he did in New Orleans. Or you saw that. I mean, they went against a very bad Atlanta defensive or Atlanta offensive line last night. But that that 3-4 going on in New Orleans right now is no joke, man. I mean, they, yep. get, they get serious pressure off a three-man rush. Which is, I mean, in the three-four, that's something because I mean, you're talking about oftentimes those are two-gap guys working there. So I mean, I was watching that last night. And I was like, man, I mean that that team's defensive ends were getting in there. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not thrilled by that prospect, but I'm I'm not I'm I'm kind of in the mode right now where I'm not serious unless it's like a John Gruden or someone who's pro- who's proven himself to be like a complete ass. I I don't have an opinion that goes either way. Like, I hear all the candidates out. Someone mentioned Bobby Smith, and, I mean, I live in, in Chicago, so I, I had front row seats for the Bobby Smith era, and I saw a lot that I liked, and I saw a lot that I didn't like, and I thought that he was handcuffed by a very bad general manager when he was with the Bears. Um, so it's really hard for me to go either way on a candidate. I don't have too much of an opinion against Rob Ryan at this point. That could that could change. I mean, he's obviously a little obnoxious. And he can't beat his brother, which kind of worries me, too. <laughs> eh, being your brother is overrated. Yeah, not when, <laughs> not when he's in the division. So, oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I, know, I know that Rob kind of got a raw deal with that in, in the, I mean, one of those matchups. I mean, he had Tony, Tony Romo as his quarterback, which, I mean, is a complete handicap in my opinion. Um, but, I mean, there's going to be a lot of a lot of promising candidates I think will come out. I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm I keep saying this. I don't want to sound like I'm against older people, but I'd like to get a younger regime in place. I really think that you're talking you're talking about a modern NFL. I mean, this is not your father's NFL. I mean, this is a, a younger man's game now. I mean, you're seeing where I mean, uh, there's a, a a considerable number of coaches. Uh, right now, who are around 40 years old. If Pep Hamilton gets hired this year, Pep Hamilton is what 38. I mean, he's a kid for for compared to a lot of these guys. So, I mean, it's just a, I think he, I mean it's time for new blood. And I mean, and I like Philbin. I think that Philbin 
Sylvan brings something to the table. The only problem is I can't put my finger on it. I don't really know what. I mean, because he didn't call the plays in Green Bay because that was McCarthy's right. deal. And I know that he ended up coordinating, and he was essentially a manager for that offense. But I, I just think that, I mean, again, we've got to find some new blood. we got to – James always throws around the term a young Don Shula. And I mean, like it's—I mean, it's easy to say that because I mean, but I mean, how do you find a young Don Shula? There are very few Don Shulas walking the earth. In fact, there's one, you know. But I mean, the thing is, I, I tend to think that we want to probably look for a head coach who's more defensive oriented. I think that that tends to help. I think the best head coaches in the history of the game were all, uh, for the most part, guys who were defensive minded. But, I mean, we could go either way. I mean, if we find some guy who's a, a West Coast enthusiast, fine. If we find a guy who, you know, like a Bruce Arians type, a guy who's really more into the vertical passing game and really wants to add, bring a lot a lot more size and speed to uh, the skill position, that's fine, too. I mean, this is the season of kind of a, a wish list, if you will, and just looking around and figuring out, just taking bits and pieces of what you're really looking for in a head coach. And, we, I mean, if, the, and if we make the playoffs, this is all a moot point. Yeah, that, and it is. It's the funny part. That's absolutely the funny part of all this is the Dolphins are 100% in the playoff race. They are in full control. They don't need help from anybody at this point. Yet a lot of the talk is replacing the head coach, replacing the GM, replacing uh, the coordinators. And – and unfortunately, there's no way to argue that that's wrong to be talking about. So I, I don't know. It's just it's an odd situation. Duke, you've been quiet for a while. What what are you thinking? I concur. Okay. Make it so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we Keith and I talked about this on the, uh, the last video thing we did a couple weeks ago, and um, I um. We talked about kind of you know what needs to happen, and I agree that you know we we agree that it's kind of uh, you know as Keith said it, these coaches are trying to be the, the smartest person in the room at all times, and they're not adaptive, they're not you know changing things, and I mean you just seen that in our offense, which I you know I found kind of um, you know it was something very very interesting and. and uh, from watching the last game, is, is there seemed to be a lot more uh, yards after catch this week. It was, it was kind of interesting to me. That's something I know some folks have kind of harped on about the, you know, the offense not having enough enough yak. And it seemed like this week we had some guys that were, were getting yak. And, you know, obviously the highlight play was Charles Clay, but you know even Hartline was 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 getting some yak and and stuff. So maybe they're maybe they're um, opening up a little bit on, on the offensive side. But, um, yeah, I agree about, you know, getting rid of those coordinators just because, I mean, the main thing that I that I look at is you look at how Sean Smith is playing in, in Kansas City. And, you know, somebody, a Dolphins fan might say, well, why didn't he do that here? And the point was I think last year he was starting, he was getting to a point where he was starting to kind of come into his own. Um, and – 
but the coordinators, in my opinion, a good coordinator will, will look at the players he has and build around those strengths. He doesn't try to, to pigeonhole a player into a, his system if they don't fit. For example, he talks about Rob Ryan being the coach. Look at the look at the defensive front that we have. He talked about getting a lot of pressure with a three-man front. Well, we would have Jared Audrick, Soli and Starks. Let's assume we resign those guys as your um, three-man front. Those guys are going to generate a lot of pressure. Then you've got Deion Jordan, Cameron Wake, and even Vernon who's stepping up a little bit. Those guys coming as your edge rushers in a three-four. You don't think a guy like Rob Ryan wouldn't wouldn't uh, you know make hay with those guys? Absolutely. But you know you, you had a, you had Coyle who had Sean Smith who was a a press man corner. That's what he excelled at. Yet he he insisted upon him playing zone, which he was not very good at. And so, in my opinion, a good coordinator said, you know what? I've got a guy here that can can play press man against good receivers and do it. You know, not necessarily great, but do it well enough. You know, I mean, he limited Fitzgerald to you know to whatever last year. Um, limited AJ Green last year, or um, yeah, I think that's you know, we played them last year. I think so. Um, you know, it, it to me it's just like no, I, I'm going to play my system, and if he doesn't fit, I'm going to get rid of him. Which I understand that in the off season, but you know, to me a good coordinator makes adjustments based on his personnel. You know, saying, all right, I've got guys that can rush the passer from a stand-up position. I've got guys that play press better than zone. I've got, uh, you know, running backs that act like this. I've got receivers that do this better. It, it just seems like to me these coordinators don't do that. They say, this is what we're going to run, and we're going to make you do it. And, you know, if, you know, if you don't do it, then, you know, you're just not good enough for whatever. So, yeah, I think we need some – need some people that kind of know how to, to use the personnel a little better. I'm not, yeah. I mean, Duke's absolutely right. You bring in Rob Ryan, and you, you give him this defensive front, and he just, he would laugh his ass off. He'd be like, what, are you kidding me? He's like, you realize what I could do with these guys? He's like, I've got, I've got Vernon coming off the bench after Vernon ate DJ Fluker last week. I mean, and the thing is, um, I've mentioned this before, but there are guys like Lovey Smith and Rob Ryan. I mean, regardless of scheme, those guys would take Deion Jordan and let him run amok. Because, I mean, that's what – I mean, you think – you talk about a multifaceted defensive tool like Deion Jordan. You think that the guy the guy covers better than uh, a fair amount of uh, linebackers and safeties in the, in the league, in my opinion. I really think he's that good. And then you you pair onto the fact that he's got he's got length and speed that uh, I mean you just you can't you can't really teach that I mean the the rarest of prospects are have that sort of blend of athleticism and size I mean it's just a win win and I mean the guy was absolutely worth the number three that out on a poll on Twitter the other day and I mean that was a unanimous response everyone was just like of course I'm thinking beyond Jordan to pick you know. So I mean, it's it's it comes down to coaching, and he brings up Sean Smith, and it's the same thing. I mean, Sean Smith with that sort of length, of course, he's a press corner. I mean, he has to be. I mean, when when you have arm length, I think he has some ridiculous arm length too. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, when I think of coaches who who try to force a square peg into a round hole, I think of like 
when Jim Mora tried to turn on Michael Vick into a, like a West Coast offense quarterback. We saw how that worked. It was a disaster. I mean, why aren't you why aren't you customizing your offense around that guy? Whereas a guy like Mike McCoy out in Denver gets Tim Tebow. He didn't try to turn him into a West Coast offense guy. I mean, he pretty much customized the offense to work for Tim Tebow. I mean, those are the guys that you want in there, guys who look at what they have and they say, I can, I can fine-tune things. I can go ahead and, uh, and uh, put things together uh, to get the best out of the guys I have. Yeah, and I think, you know, I don't know about, I don't know about Philbin. I mean, he may stay, but I, I don't believe Jeff Ireland. I don't. I believe he's gone. I mean, I, I just think, you know, with with the the all the extracurricular stuff going on, all of that. Um, I don't think. I think Ross is, you know, willing to admit that. You know, he. I think. I honestly think that. You know, Ross is, has publicly gave his support for Jeff Ireland, but that's kind of expected. Um, I think that he he basically said, "Look, I know you know you were the guy that was here when I bought the team. You were here with Parcells. I'm going to give you a chance to do things on your own and see if you can turn it around." And I think he gave him that chance. And it's you know interesting that it would you know it, it would be kind of ironic I think that Jeff Ireland would, would get fired in the same uh, in the same season the Dolphins actually make the playoffs if they make the playoffs. So um, that would be kind of weird, but I just think, I just don't think he survives all this other stuff. I, I just think that um, he, he's going to be the, uh, you know, and I, I think the Dolphins are going to come out of all, all the other, all this other stuff fine, uh, but I just think that there's going to be so much, because Ross, is, you know, he's, he's a guy that he wants to make the fans as happy as possible. I mean, he, he he's a fan's owner. He's not, you know, he's he's not out there just, you know, doing what he thinks he wants to do. He wants the fans to to like the team. He he wants to be you know, popular with the fans. And I think at this point he would fire Jeff Allen just to make fans happy. Uh, but I but I do think that uh, you know if if they're talking about you know blowing everything up, I think it starts there. And I, and I just think he's gone. You know, Stephen Ross is like a bizarro, less meddling Charles Charles O'Finley. I think you got all of us on that one. Everybody went, wait, huh? Okay. <laughs> I don't disagree, but I just, yeah. Um, and it's funny because everybody says how much they hate Ross and how stupid, everybody loves to say how stupid he looks or how he's a clown and all this stuff. But I think I think you're right in that, he does these things because he wants this team to win and he wants this team to be liked and he wants the fans to enjoy themselves when they are at the games and all that kind of stuff. But we end up with getting stuck in mediocrity and it looks like he's wasting all his time on trying to do all those extracurriculars. But he, uh, He's not taking money away from the team in order to build club live or in order to – I mean, I don't see um, – Is it live or lie? Know, I don't know. Whatever it is. I don't live down in Miami. <laughs> Whatever it is. Um, he He's not – it's not like he's uh, he's letting Serena Williams make decisions for the team. 
I mean, they put money in, they get money out of the team. That's it. Yeah, and I mean, it's been expressed, and I don't know how many people actually listen to it, but the the football operations side and the business operations side do not coincide. Um, so all of that orange carpet, club, whatever, all that stuff, that's the business side that has absolutely nothing to do with the football products at all. So basically, and I think the way it was explained was um, Mike D and Jeff Ireland, I mean, they did not work. The only time they probably saw each other was, uh, you know, hanging out with Stephen Ross. But they didn't report to one another about anything. So, I mean, the fans that are worried about all that other stuff, all he's trying to do is just make money off of that. He's not attempting to, he's not saying, oh, you know, I'm not worried about the product on the field. No, that, that's not it. Uh, I mean, you, know, you you already have fans talking about, you know, being displeased with Mike Wallace, and he was not, you know, he didn't have any problems working out a, a bunch of decades for him. So, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I, it, so the fans worried about Stephen Ross not trying to put interest or money into the team. They really aren't paying attention, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, um, I, don't, I do. Want I, don't to, have, I do. I don't have any sort of problem with with the Ross. I mean, like, if anything, I really like Ross actually. But I think the reason he's gonna gonna go after Philbin or go after Ireland here is while Philbin handles the team for the most part, Ireland's been handling the money. Yeah, right. Um, I do want to go ahead and change it up a little bit. We've uh, we, we've talked all the coaching and possible changes for a while. Uh, start talking a little bit of actual football stuff and um, and somehow still not be talking about Martin and uh, and uh, Incognito because apparently that's all that really is football stuff nowadays. A uh, couple questions coming out of the live thread. Uh, M. Casher says, first off, two-part question. First of all, do you think we should have Deion Jordan playing a spy the entire game? And then secondly, do you think Coyle will actually do that? I mean, it's something you could do at some point. I think that uh, I would I would be surprised if Jordan didn't have his hands full with Greg Olson in that game. I think that you're going to see a lot of that. But that's not a bad call where, I mean, you could also use him to spy uh, Cam Newton. I mean, the thing that people need to realize about Carolina, and I think this was touched upon during that game on Monday night, is they don't do a lot of a lot of zone read. Right. It's not, it's not like a Kaepernick. Yeah, and I've watched enough Carolina to know that they don't – that Cam Newton can still be rattled, and he can, he still has doubts of inaccuracy. Um, you know, and I, I think he's improving, but I think he's a guy that if you put pressure on it, you know, he, he's going to get he's going to get yards at his feet, obviously, but if he, he's a guy that if you can put pressure on, he, he will make mistakes. So having Deion Jordan on him like that, I think, is a – would be an asset because – Deion Jordan has the athleticism and size to just harass him the whole game. Yeah. I mean, he he was wild with some of his throws on Monday night. And there was that one that really should have been picked off where he threw it. It was practically full coverage on a guy near the sideline. It was just a, it was just a bad idea. So, I mean, he, he's, he can definitely be had. It's just going to be about, you know, maximizing uh, – 
uh, the, the defense's ability to take advantage of those mistakes. Because, I mean, you're going to get an opportunity or two. It's just really, I mean, you got to pounce on it. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't know that Coy will necessarily do that, but I, I do think that they're, they're going to, they're going to try to take, take him out. And you know, I think that, um, you know, one thing that's kind of getting overlooked is, while, you know, Wake's kind of having a down year thanks to some injuries and stuff, uh, the team is actually, uh, I think, I'm not sure where they rank in overall NFL, but they're only like six or seven sacks total behind the Chiefs. So it's not like they're not getting pressure. It's just it's evening out, which we kind of that's what we kind of thought we would see when Jordan was drafted. It's actually turned into um, Audric blossoming from the interior position and Vernon, you know, with five and a half sacks. So, you know, we're, we're getting sacks from other from other areas. So, um, I think we're going to see a, see them dial up a lot of pressure on him, um, and just dial up pressure the rest of the season. Um, you know, it's. I think we're going to see that, and I think we're going to start seeing Jordan get more snaps now because I think we are in uh, that kind of do-or-die mode, and, and uh, the rest of the quarterbacks that we play, aside from, from from Tom Brady, are the kind that you can, if you pressure them a lot, they're going to make a lot of mistakes. I think I, I talked to you, Keith, about this earlier. I think the role for Jordan in this game is you line him up essentially in Wheeler's spot. You take Wheeler out, you put Jordan in, and he absolutely could be the spy on Cam, but you just put him on Greg Olson and just say, go. You stay with him, and we take out that. It's not like the Panthers try to be a power-running team, but it's not like they run the ball well. They have a bunch of running backs that they're going to get some yardage. I'm not, I'm not saying they won't, but it's, they're not a going to dominate you for 200 yards of rushing and three touchdowns type of team. Now that I've said that, we're pretty good so far. Hold on, Brent. What's this? What are we? What are? What is Brent seeing? I so don't understand. Right now. <laughs> What was that? I have no idea. <laughs> that was a little strange, but uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's no such thing as deja vu. It's just a glitch in the matrix. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, I don't even know what I was talking about anymore. I'm done. <laughs> You're talking about I mean, the I think, I think we had oh, a yeah. problem going on this week. Um, you know, we we, str- we struggled with that. I mean, you took you look at the Tampa Bay game as an obvious uh, example of, of how bad our run defense is. And part of that is our linebacking core. You know, I think uh, PFF has kind of hinted at it, and others have said, you know, that the LRB and, Car- uh, LRB and Wheeler signings, uh, we're not. Uh, they haven't done an adequate job replacing Burnett and Dansby, uh, and I think that um, you know I, th- I think they'll be okay. I mean, Carolina's got some issues uh, along their offensive line, so I think our defensive guys can can handle them a little bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Carolina does have does have the horses in the backfield. If, if they want to exploit our defense, they can. Uh, so. 
our goal, in my opinion, should be to to stop the run and force force them to throw the ball a lot more. They they're limited in their weapons. Uh, I mean, uh, you've got Steve Smith, but you've got LaFell and Ted Ginn who are uh, they have their moments. So I mean, they can easily have a great game and they can turn around and have a really bad game. So I th- I think we just need to force. Panthers to throw the ball off, put the ball in Cam Newton's hands, force him to throw, and generate a lot of pressure. If we can do that, um, then we can get a lot of we can get some uh, we can stop their offense. Anybody want to bet on Ted Ginn Jr. wanting to come out here and just torch us? Oh, you know he wants to. Well, I mean, I, I would say that, but then again, he played us last year when he played for San Francisco. So that's he was going to get revenge. If he was going to get revenge. He could have done it then. He still may want to, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not saying he's wrong, but at the same time, I don't, I, I'm not overly concerned by it. Oh, I'm not con- yeah, I'm not concerned about it. I, I do think he's more of a contributor to this offense than he was with the one in San Francisco. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it's too bad how things went down with him when he was here. Uh, he was pretty much set up to fail in a lot of ways. I feel like he was. we tried to turn him into a number one receiver when he was uh, when he was Elvin Harper, that kind of guy, not not someone who's right. really in the contact. Just a, I mean, just a pure vertical threat, and very good at at what he did, especially in the return game. I mean, not very good hands either. Uh, but I mean, it's it's too bad that it worked out the way that it did because I mean, he had a lot of bad plays for us, but I mean, he had a lot of great plays for us. And I always think about that afternoon in New York when he toasted the Jets. Uh, I mean, we don't win that game without him. So, I mean, or when or when he annihilated Revis on Monday Night Football, that was pretty great too. So, I mean, I I tend to look back on the the non Tedgin family things that that took place during his time in Miami. And I mean, if he if he comes out and he wants to torch us, I mean, I understand. I understand. I hope he realizes that uh uh. Parcells is gone, although his main gripe is probably with Ireland, as it seems uh, a lot of former players have a hang-up with that guy. So, I mean, it is what it is. But And and, and really, what, the, more I, the more I watch how they use him in Carolina and how Miami uses Mike Wallace, I mean, I, I mean Mike Wallace is, is a better receiver, but the way they use the two of them, I, I really don't see why they don't use Ted, why they didn't just pick up Ted again instead of Mike Wallace. I mean, seriously, let him he runs comeback routes. He's not going to run slants, but Mike Wallace doesn't run a lot of those either, uh, at least not effectively here. Um, you know, you basically get the same the same thing for for less money. Um, and I understand, you, you know, no no GM in the right mind is going to do that. You you trade a guy away and then pick him up a guy who is a a, a pariah on your team that everyone kind of blames of the you know the he was kind of a the poster boy for for everything bad that happened in 2007 and and everything just kind of how that all went down. But I mean, do you agree? Do you, do you would you agree with that assessment? I mean, that's, in a way, that's kind of an indictment on our coaches. It's like you know they they've not with what we've got with with Mike Wallace, we could have basically gotten the exact same thing out of Ted Ginn. No, I agree. I mean, the thing is, it's not like Mike Wallace's hands are any better than Ted Ginn's. We've seen him drop just as many balls. Uh, I mean, and I mean, you probably make the case that pound for pound, I mean, 
I don't think Mike Wallace is fast. Again. I, I think Mike Wallace is very fast, but I, I don't know. I mean, when Ted Ginn gets in the open field, I've, I mean, there's not a, a prayer in hell that anyone from behind him is going to catch him. And it, I mean, and he's, I mean, the problem is that he's a longer stroke than, than yeah. Wallace, but I think that really for what we were looking for at the time, I, I thought that, I mean, Ted Ginn, should you really be drafting a number two receiver and number nine overall? No. Should you be drafting him over Patrick Willis and Darrell Revis and all these guys? No. But, I mean, in terms of a number two receiver you know, as a vertical threat, I mean, he was he could do some things at times. And, I mean, it's just too bad. I'll, I'll never understand why we tried to turn him into a number one receiver. I mean, no one thought that was a good idea. And then we and then we pretty much turned on him because he couldn't become that number one receiver. It's not his fault that uh, Kamoran and Randy Mueller drafted him at number nine overall. I mean, those those two guys were idiots. I mean, and ultimately, I mean, they really put a lot of you know unneeded pressure on Ted Ginn. And I I feel bad about it, really. I mean, I always thought that Ted Ginn came across as like a nice guy. It seemed like he I mean he worked hard. Um, I know that he, I mean, he wasn't a gritty type receiver. And I mean, the the book on him was if you get rough with him, uh, he'll fade. And I mean, that did happen at times. But yeah, I mean, we, we're paying uh, Mike Wallace sixty uh, some million dollars to to do what essentially we we could have had done with Ted Ginn anyway, especially with the number of balls he's caught, which is an indictment on our coaches, like you said, absolution. So I, I think yeah, that I, he's probably gone, but I do see a way where he stays. I, yeah, I agree. I think that I mean he. I think that he's gone. But the funny thing is, he could save his job if he goes nine and seven. But to be honest with you, I think if he still gets there, um, it's going to be awfully tough to hang on to him. I think that, like you said, someone's got to go down for that. So for the uh, the locker room situation, that is. So right. The thing I've been worrying about is because I don't want Tannehill to fall, fall by the wayside while we continue to play uh, coaching and 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 all musical chairs. Because I, I really believe that we have the guy. I think that Tannehill, I mean, people are, are complaining about the deep ball right now because there's not enough air under it. That can, I, I know some people on Twitter disagree. I think that can be fixed. I think he's got the arm strength. I think it's really a case of he's aiming the ball. Um, I used to, not that like I'm any great expert, but I, I mean, I used to play the position too. And the thing is, when you try to aim the ball, it disrupts your timing. Uh, it just kind of puts you in a tunnel vision that you don't want. It, it's in a lot of ways, it's it's kind of like hitting a baseball. Or I mean, like the thing is, like you just you really can't think too much about it. You just you gotta let I the. Think, I think another part of it is, and we all know that there are people on the site who are going to absolutely disagree with this comment, but it comes down to chemistry and. There are times. I mean, okay, we're 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 Miami fans. Yeah, before so word. we're Miami Dolphins fans. So I know most of us on this uh, on this podcast are not, but the majority of our listeners are the Miami Heat fans of the Miami Heat. Should remember that first year. Yes, they made it to the finals, but they played most of the year without chemistry. You could see it. Dwayne Wade and LeBron James could not figure out how to work together well. And it took them a while. Is that a coaching thing? No. Is that a that either one of those players suck? No. It's a they need to figure out how to play together. Ryan Tannehill and Mike Wallace 
have to figure out how to play together. Looking at it and going, we're into week 12, they should have figured it out by now, you're probably right. I, I won't say that you're wrong, but I will say that just because it should have doesn't mean that it did. And it could just be a matter of, I mean, there's practice speed and then there's game speed. And Tannehill hasn't had a receiver that fast. And he's looking at it like, I have to put this ball right here. Not thinking about the fact that if I just throw this ball up in the air, he can go get it. Because we haven't seen Wallace do that yet. We haven't seen Wallace fight for a ball. We haven't seen those type of things. So Tannehill doesn't know if he can do it yet. And I think that's where the rip it comment comes in, that Philbin told Tannehill, look, just rip it. Throw it as far as you can. Let's see if Wallace can go get it. And maybe we see it this week. Maybe we don't. I don't know. But I think that's where that comes from, that there is chemistry that is missing here. The heat comparison is an interesting one in that uh, – for for that for that first season and much of that second season, it was LeBron James. What it seemed was doing what Dwayne Wade wanted him to do. It seemed right. like it was almost like he was willing to play second fiddle to him. And at some point, and I mean, a lot of people would point to Game Six of that was when LeBron stepped up and said, "You, you know what? I mean, know your role, Dwayne Wade. He's like you're you're a great player, but he's like, but I mean, I was brought here for a reason. This is my team." And he proceeded to take it over, and I mean, those guys steamrolled through the championship that year because they just went right through Oklahoma City like diarrhea. I will, I will say they that steamrolled with, uh, straight to Wayne Wade's second ring. What's that? I'm just saying they steamrolled straight to Dwayne Wade's second ring. Yes. There you go. <laughs> so the important thing to um. To note with Tannehill, and this is one thing that you you put on him is at some. I feel like it's almost like he's he's looking to Wallace. You know, like what am I doing wrong? And I mean, th- it's not Wallace's team. It's Tannehill's team. You know, and the thing point. is, yep. I mean, you have to sit there and say like, we're going to do things my way. You know, when you're going to run that route, and I mean, I'm going to do my damnedest to hit you on that route. But if not, uh, the thing is, I mean, still my team. You know, you got to make it work. And it kind of goes to it kind of goes to exactly what fans say. Wallace is a $60 million man. The Dolphins wrote a giant check to him, uh, pursued him, brought him down here for a reason. So I can see where a second-year quarterback is going, okay, what do you want me to do? Instead of going, this is where I need you to be. This is what I need you to do. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I, I, I stumbled onto that with the Dwayne Wade analogy without even realizing it and you saw it, so that's a, that's a great point. Well, I mean, the other way that Tannehill could look at it is this team believes in him enough to go get him that type of receiver. Because right. I, I struggle to imagine spending that much money on receiver if you don't have a quarterback who can get him the ball. I mean, you're wasting your time then. So, I mean, like, if you're back there and you have some, you know, if Cleo Lemon's back there, are you really going to pay Mike Wallace $60 million? To, to go ahead and, and run nine routes for him? Probably not. That's probably not a good idea. I, I really think, I mean, and maybe Ireland brought him in really just to save his job. I don't know. But if I'm Ryan Tannehill, I look at it and say, this team believes in me enough to that it will do whatever it can to enable me to get them to the Super Bowl. And that means going and completely overpaying Mike Wallace 
to get him down here. The thing is, I, I, I talk to people online, they're like, you're going to be regretting that contract. And it's like, well, with the capologists we have, not really. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's and stupid money. But, I mean, they had of plenty of it, to, and the room was staged up so they could go quick. ahead and... To jump on that real quick, there's a lot of people that are angry with Donna Ponte. And out of the front office, from what I have seen, and of course there are stories about how she stiffed people or how she's a horrible negotiator. That's kind of what you want from your capologist, isn't it? I, I kind of think that she, if, if the front office gets cleaned out, she's somebody that we need to keep because eventually somebody's going to try to steal her to make her a GM. But she can figure out this cap stuff and exactly how to work these contracts and everything that I don't have a problem with what she's done so far. No, her I don't either. Said, get this guy. She went and signed that guy for the money that it took to sign him, and she worked ways to make it work. Well, go to, um, like, suppose if you went to, like, the Redskins uh, headquarters right now and you asked them if they'd be interested in Donna Ponte, I guarantee you they'd beat the, down, the door down for her. I mean, you look at some of these teams that are so strapped in terms of the cap. I mean, the Steelers were up there, too. I mean, we're sitting pretty right now, and we're, and we're about to take a, what, what is Wallace's second year cap hit? Like eighteen million dollars or something? Seventeen, eighteen. Uh, Seventeen, eighteen. Yeah, it's I think stupid that's right. money for a second year hit. So the thing is, we can afford to do that kind of stuff because of how things are lined up, and a lot of that stems from how we're able to negotiate these contracts. So yeah, it's. I mean, that's dirty work. The 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 thing that works out really well is you take that big cap hit in Wallace's second year for one specific reason you can't renegotiate with Tannehill until after that year. Because yeah. of the way the CBA is, he has to play the first three years of his contract before he can start renegotiating. So you bite the bullet and you pay all that money in that second year because in that third year when now Tannehill's going into that fourth season, Wallace's third year number drops way down. It goes from he's 17.25 in his second year, in 2014, he drops down to 12.1 in his third year. So that's $5 million right there that frees up. And he also, it pays him so much of his guaranteed money right away that he actually becomes a $5.5 million cap savings if he's cut. So you've done the let's bring him in, and sure, in the end it might prove to be a bad decision, and, I mean, we're also talking about this before everything plays out, and we could find that this absolutely clicks and everything looks great. But you, you do. You bite that bullet because your quarterback right now is so cheap. And once your quarterback starts going up the, um, up the pay scale and you have to start paying him that extra money that you do have to pay for quarterbacks, then, yeah, it, it becomes harder to hold on to a guy that's making that much. But, yeah, this year he's a three, $3 million cap hit, and next year he's 17. So it's a, it's a huge difference. But Donna Ponte did some good work to figure out how to do all that. Yeah, and we're going to be able to continue to to spend on free agents and, and whatnot as a result. So, I mean, like, like I said, I mean, that's messy work to be involved. But, I mean, she's done well with it. And we had the kind of cap room where, I mean, that, that Wallace – Money is ugly, but it doesn't set us back. Which right, is the exactly. Point. I mean, it, and it sucks to look at. Like, this have... one guy was like, how are 
how are you paying Mike Wallace $17 million in his second year, especially when he's not catching anything? And I, and I was like, you know what, I agree. We totally overpaid that guy. But Miami had the cap room and was make, willing to make it happen just to get him there. Right. Now, and, can they capitalize on it? I don't know. And when you look at it, that was the market. I mean, obviously the the um, the Vikings were willing to pay more. So it's not like the Dolphins outbid themselves in this. It wasn't a baseball contract where they made up some ridiculous number because they were afraid somebody else might jump in and nobody else was. There were other teams out there after Mike Wallace and for more money. And obviously the climate of Miami and the young quarterback in Miami was enough to bring him to Miami versus playing in Minnesota in the outdoor stadium they're going to have starting next year. Um, we do have a couple more questions in the live thread that I did want to get to, and another one from M. Casher. Uh, Daniel Thomas gets a lot of hate among Dolphins fans, but in his opinion, if you give him 20 to 25 carries as feature back, he's performing better than Lamar Miller. Too many times does Casher, M. Casher says that he sees Lamar Miller bounce outside and get a yard at best. Thomas is a downhill runner who can pick up three to four yards per rush and make the third downs more manageable. Do you guys agree or disagree? Well, I mean, the proof is in the pudding there with the numbers right now. I think that uh, of anyone who's suffered behind the line this year, uh, Ryan Tannehill would be number one. Lamar Miller's two. It seems like he's just, I I mean, it's almost like he's stunned at times. I know that he's a one-cut type guy and he's looking for these holes to open. And the truth of the matter is that our offensive line is really poor at getting at getting that initial push and creating holes right now. And, I mean, like, because Miller's better than this. We know that. We saw him at times last year where, I mean, like, right. I mean, he's, I mean, he ate the Jets alive that first time they played. And, um, and he had some impressive runs um, otherwise. But, I mean, they're not getting a push, and it's just it seems, it's in his head, too, and he's not playing well either. So, yeah, I mean, Daniel Thomas, the thing is, he shows flashes. He'll do that thing where he'll he'll throw down some sort of, like, freak juke move and just completely, like, destroy a guy, and then he'll go ahead and go ahead and get tied up for a two-yard loss on the next play. So, I mean, yeah, but, I mean, the, another thing to consider is when you're running against the Chargers defense, your, your numbers are going to be, are, are going to, all you know, they're going to be altered a little bit. Well, I'm not I'm not buying anything from Daniel Thomas at all. I, I don't care if he averaged you know ten yards carry last week or whatever. It, I, I'm not buying it. I, I've seen it too much. Okay, and I did watch the game on NFL Rewind, but I, I had it on my DVR, so I, I went back and watched it again. There was a run he had in the first, what was it the first half? It was, it was the one where he actually ended up scoring on the drive. And, and it, to me, it was a prime example of, of how why Daniel Thomas will never be a anything more than just an average kind of back. If he had a wide open running lane, he hit the wide open running lane. Tyson Clavo was out, uh, either Clavo or somebody was out in front of him. I don't remember. You know, to set up a block, he he, he runs, and there was a guy behind him that may would have that could have caught him, but I doubt he was aware of the guy behind him. So might more count him. He has wide open space to his right. If he makes sure, he doesn't have to make a big cut. All he has to do is just basically kind of pivot and go to the right. He probably gets another five yards. As hard as he was running, he could have bulled over those safeties and got into the end zone on that play. What does he do? He falls right in behind the blocker. He gets hit, gains about two more yards, and goes down. Now, it was a big run. 
it gained a lot of yards. But he left yards down on the field because he just lacks vision. In my opinion, a good running back, you take a guy like Arian Foster, who is, in my opinion, a similar type field, not a fast guy, uh, but but he's got such great vision. On that play there, he might he makes it into the end zone. Daniel Thomas didn't. He, he, he scored a few plays later, but it took a – it took a uh, roughing the passer penalty, a couple of other things for us to even get down there when Daniel Thomas may have scored on that very play. So, no, I, I, you know, he might have a game like that, but then again, you're going to watch him play against Carolina, and they have a tough defensive front. He's going to be back to his, you know, 2.9 yards per carry kind of stuff because, and I think Keith and I talked about this, Miller and Thomas, are guys who who have to have a good offensive line to run well. They 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 give you what the line gets them. They don't do any more. Miller's not a guy that's going to break tackles, and he's not very shifty. He's not you know he's got speed. He's got great deep speed. If he, if he gets in the open field, you're not catching. But he's not a guy like Reggie Bush was that's going to make moves and and make you miss. He's not a guy that's going to grind for yardage up the middle. He's a guy that if you give him that running lane, he takes it and goes. He can get four or five yards to carry like that. That's great. But if you're asking him to gain more than what's there, then you probably not get anything. Same thing with Daniel Thomas. Just he's a little bit slower. He does run with some power at times, but other times he doesn't. But, I mean, I, I just don't think giving Daniel Thomas more more carries is going to make him more productive. Um, he may have a good game. I think in his past games he's got more carries because he was being more productive. But at the same time, I mean, you, you'll see they'll run hard some games, and I, I think we see that. You know, you'll see him. He'll get the ball. He'll he'll drag a tackler or two. And of course, this team, you know, the Chargers couldn't tackle anyone. It didn't seem like. So, like he said, that doesn't place your numbers. But you know, to me, it was that one play that he just does not seem to have the kind of vision it takes to be a premier back, a starting caliber back in the league. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, I like Lamar. I, mean, I like Lamar. I don't like Daniel Thomas. I mean, I tolerate him, but yeah, I, mean, I mean, I mean, at this point, if if I'm a, if I'm a new GM and I can't find anything better than Daniel Thomas, you can survive with him. I mean, he's not going to he's not going to ruin your team by any means. But if you can go out there and find a guy who's a, a better player, I mean, you could probably find. Um, you know, a, a power back to kind of compliment, kind of compliment Miller or whatever. You know, I haven't looked at running backs in this draft or anything yet, but let's say there's a, a guy like that out there, you know, and mind you, seriously, why, why does he not get any playing time? I mean, to me, it's just, I, I've seen it before. We, we had two two or three games earlier in the year where Daniel Thomas was running like a madman. Just, he was unstoppable, and then he disappears again. And then he has this one game. No, I, I'm just not buying anything from him. He's just way too inconsistent. Does not have good vision. Um, he's just not a not a top quality runner in my opinion. Yeah, I think that Lamar's the future. I don't think I don't think Daniel Thomas is. Another thing is Daniel Thomas cannot put together 60 minutes of football. It seems like you'll get a quarter out of him that's decent, and that's pretty much it. Um, hey guys, there's some uh, bloodhounds coming out in the draft. As we are talking this, and he, I, I've held him on hold for a little bit longer than uh, than when I got my message from James. But uh, Dolphins fan for life also wants to come on and talk Daniel Thomas and also some Charles Clay. So 
Solid fans for life. How are you tonight? I'm doing all right. So, uh, what, what are your good. thoughts on Daniel Thomas? Um, as far as Daniel Thomas goes, I was wondering um, if he would benefit more from maybe since, you know, we have all these injuries to the wide receivers and all this other good stuff, if maybe he might benefit from being in a two-back set where you have both him and Miller, where we kind of feed him based on the coverage, keeping Daniel Thomas for the inside lanes, Lamar for the outside. Uh, it's just, I noticed we tend to do that a little bit with Charles Clay. Um when we utilize him, it's kind of like a fullback role, but he's more like a – it's ran more like a two-back set. But um, I was just wondering if we might see more production, possibly if we ran a two-back set utilizing both of them. I don't know. I've kind of reached the point where I feel like you can't polish a turd. And I, I hey, Mythbusters proved you could. I haven't seen that episode of Mythbusters. They proved you could. They look like guys <laughs> who would try that. Uh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so I think that um, they, they ruin everything. Like they, I figured out that the, the end of Jaws isn't possible. That killed me. So now if I'm ever out there against a great white shark and the thing has a a freaking scuba tank in his mouth, we're we're um, SOL on that. Uh, I just I don't know I it seems like we give Daniel Thomas all these chances and we, we try to go ahead and, and and put him in all these different roles and everything and and I feel like if he's not getting it done this year you're probably not going to see it out of him because this coaching staff currently has some sort of absurd commitment to him that I am not understanding he should not have been taking that ball uh, in the red zone against the new in, against New Orleans on Monday night that one where he got stuffed on third down it wasn't even close. That made no sense. I'm right. not sure who he has pictures of, but, I mean, they they are just committed to making that guy work, and, I mean, I'm not seeing it. It's the same, it's it's bad coaching, in my opinion. It's the same thing with Sherman. I mean, he's unwilling to, to sit there and try to adapt. He just keeps forcing, forcing these things in there. You know, we're going to go ahead and we're going to force these routes, and Mike Wallace is going to do this instead of, you know, just, I mean, let that guy run amok. I mean, let it. I mean, go ahead and run some broken plays. So I, I don't know. I struggle to to imagine a situation in which Dale Thomas is actually going to prosper. It could happen, but I don't see it. Speaking of Mike Wallers, didn't he have that one run where it was pretty much successful? Why don't we run that anymore? Like, he had this one play where he went on like a end around, but he came back and cut back and ran for like all these yards. We talk about needing to get him into the game more. Why don't we try that? Yeah. Well, this is a a, da- a dangerous premise because, again, I mean, there's a lot of things you could ask about this coaching staff. I mean, Kevin and I were talking about it. Why aren't we using Deion Jordan like Von Miller in Denver? I mean, Denver runs a, technically a 4-3. I understand we're, we're of the hybrid variety. But, I mean, they drafted a 3-4 pass rusher, stuck him at weak side outside linebacker, and it's not a problem. I mean, they get a lot of rushes over that end. And the idea with that, that defense is you're trying to get the ball to flow to him anyway. So, I, I mean, why are – I mean, with a guy – and, I mean, Deion Jordan destroys Von Miller as a coverage guy, and Von Miller is very good in coverage. 
So why aren't we using Deion Jordan in that role? I mean, what do you have to lose? I mean, he's a rookie. Uh, and, I mean, and he's in there, and he clearly wants to play. And I mean, and he makes an impact when he does. So I mean, what's the what's the play here? I mean, I just I find myself second guessing this this coaching staff all the time, and I feel bad doing that because I'm just a guy sitting at home. You know, they're they're the ones out there on the front lines making these calls, but a lot of them right now are not making sense, and they, it seems like they're struggling to get the most out of their personnel, which is the number one thing of coaching. I mean, what are you getting out of your players? I mean, the great ones, the ones you're paying sixty million dollars to, and the ones you're paying rookie money to. I think he'll see a lot more playing time next year than he did this year, but I I really do seriously think that a lot of this playing everybody else except for him on most plays is kind of like building up our trade arsenal, so to speak. I think we're really trying to push for a bigger set of draft picks because Ireland likes doing that anyways. But um, my second one was, I don't know if y'all watched the NFL Network today, but Shannon Sharp had something about Charles Clay, and he doesn't even know what position he plays. But he was just like, any time this guy touches touches the field, you line him up here, he does this. Who kind of expected that from Charles Clay after the season he had last season? I think that I think Charles Clay is one of those guys who definitely um, – definitely benefited from having a season where he wasn't the number one tight end. Because when he came in as a rookie, the Dolphins clearly wanted to use him as a fullback. They listed him as H-back. They said he could do things from the tight end position, but they used him as a fullback. Then last year, they had Dvorsky Lane to be the fullback. They had Anthony Pisano to be the tight end. So you didn't need Charles Clay to do anything. And a lot of people went, well, he must suck. We can't see him on the field. He's not doing the same things that we expected. And we all thought that he was, he, was, he was never going to find his stride as a tight end. And now this year he's developed nicely into that role, and it's worked out really well. So I, At the I beginning of the season, they... it is a surprise. But... At the beginning of the season, we actually had him listed as an eight, as a as a running back um, on the depth chart. Can I think we... that I think that they never the team never listed him as a running back or a fullback. I think that that was just a carryover from how he had previously been listed, and that once all of the websites and ESPN and NFL dot com and all that started finally catching up with what the Dolphins were really doing with him, they've all started slotting him at tight end. Although you'll still see places where he's absolutely listed as a fullback. And, yeah. I mean, he's, he, he's a little bit of both. Um, he's one of these jack-of-all-trades jack guys who somehow actually seems to be mastering something and not be good at everything, master at none. I just like the way he thumps into guys and <laughs> runs for extra yards. They uh, they were talking about that on the Dolphins radio show um, yesterday, I think. I think it was yesterday's show about that. And that Clay Clay runs when he gets the ball in his hands. He runs like a fullback, and that's what you want yeah. from him because these littler guys that have the speed, you don't need to juke them. Go ahead and run them over because eventually what that does is it starts making them 
start diving for his feet, at which point he just jumps over them. So, yeah, I, I yes, I agree. It, it's nice to see that, him just pump people. That one play against uh, the Chargers kind of reminded me of Javorski Lane in that um, Cowboys game. When he just oh, yeah. Like, boom, yep. boom. And, you know. But yeah, I'm not gonna keep y'all very long. I know y'all probably have something someone else calling, but I just wanted to add my two cents on the Daniel Thomas kinda like an idea. Uh, I just think that we might with the lack of receiver depth right now with Gibson out and Keller out and this person out and I think Armand Benz is out. Is he even still on the team? He's on injured reserve. Oh, but just we got to get something as far as protection is going, and uh, some type of running game, so we're not just one dimensional. Because nobody issue with Daniel Thomas and with Lamar Miller. Um, you know, I was listening to to the two back set. The problem is with them is the offensive line. Those guys aren't, you know, if they have a good offensive line, they can run well. Without one, they're going to struggle for run. So, you know, when our offensive line is playing well, you'll see those guys uh, with good statistics. When the offensive line is not playing well, you know, it'll be like Tampa Bay. They just—they're not guys who can generate who can generate yardage on their own. They're not a guy that make—they're not players that make guys miss that can, you know. Daniel Thomas, even though he runs tough at times. He's not a guy that's going to get hit at the line of scrimmage and drag a guy three yards and gain three yards where it was not. He's a guy that's going to give you four yards because the four yards are there and maybe an extra yard after that. So I, I don't think formation with him is necessarily a, a, a an issue. It's just I think if the offensive line improves, um, you know, you'll, I, think you'll our, I think our offensive line would be fine if we just moved to a balance protection scheme as opposed to the stupid zone blocking scheme that they keep trying to square peg round hold them in. One of the changes you see with uh, in terms of where they go next year, uh, that would obviously be a, a coaching thing, but you're, yeah, you're starting to see where uh, it, the zone blocking scheme for these guys just really, in my opinion, isn't working out, and it's really killing them in the run game. It just seems like these guys are just struggling to really get a hat on a hat, which is the idea when you're when you're when you're in a run block, and it just seems like at this point, I mean, you're going to be losing multiple personnel on the offensive line next year anyway. Because I mean, we can I feel like we can safely assume that Martin and Incognito are not coming back. So at, at that point, I mean, you can pretty much draft a, a guy for a for a man scheme. I mean, you can you can go get bigger guys, uh, guys, uh, or maybe a little bit more plotting, if you want. I mean, it, it seems like that might be the way to go anyway, because I mean, this this current staff just isn't picking it up. Dolphins fix that. I'll add one thing on your call tonight. Um, I got a few more things that we got to cover real quick in the last fifteen minutes or so of the show. So thanks That's for cool. calling in tonight. And uh, no problem. It, it's good conversation, so good question. Thanks very much. You have a good night. Uh-huh. You too. Duke, go ahead. What were you going to say? Um, I'm doing some, some quick math here. Um, 
with Charles Clay, because I saw this earlier in the season, and I'm going to make sure it's adding up. Um, you know, everyone was kind of worried about, you know, when we lost Dustin Keller, and, and obviously that was a big concern, and Charles Clay has stepped up. Based on his current statistics, if he just keeps up what he's doing, he will finish the season with, um, let me calculate one more thing here. Um, should name him just a second. <laughs> here we go. All right. He will finish with 67 catches, 800 and some yards, delete to that, and um, six touchdowns. By comparison, Dustin Keller's best season was 65 catches, 815 yards, and five touchdowns. So if Charles Clay keeps up what he's been doing, he will actually have surpassed the best season that Dustin Keller has ever had. Now, that doesn't mean that Dustin Keller wouldn't have had a great season here. Maybe that he would have had his best season in his offense. But I think it's safe to say that based on what we know we could have gotten from Dustin Keller, we are, we are getting from Charles Clay. So that, you know, he's a guy that, that had to step up, and he did. So it's, it's nice to see that, actually. I agree. Um, got some rapid-fire questions since we are down to the last few minutes here. Um Pocket Aces asked three questions. Uh, the second one we've kind of already covered, so we'll just touch it real quick. First one is, why does Sherman insist on throwing the ball late in the game when they are trying to kill the clock and are running well? Why doesn't Phil then intervene? I think, and you guys can answer too, but I, I, we can't give you an answer. Um, Keith and I talked this a little while ago. That th- There's probably a respect thing involved here that Sherman gave Philbin his job. Now Philbin or Sherman is working for Philbin. So there, there's probably a respect thing there that he doesn't want to step on Sherman's toes. But I, I agree. At some point, I think Philbin's going to have to just go, you know what, we're doing it this way from now on. Um, you guys agree? Any thoughts there real quick? No, it's just a, it's a relationship where I feel like Philbin probably doesn't want to step on any toes. It's just a problem when you when you bring in some mentor to be the guy under you. It it just seems like a like a bad situation in my opinion, and it's kind of proving that because it's something where he absolutely should step in. I mean, I mean, there's just a lot of inexplicable things going on with this offense right now. I mean, and it's maddening for us to watch because we don't understand why the the head coach isn't doing something. I mean, why Why are these – I mean, the play calling is just absurd right now on offense. It is strange. Uh, why are we so committed to to running the ball right now when, it, when we don't have a, a hope in hell of getting done? It's not like we're using running to open up the pass. We're, it's like we're running in spite of the fact that we can't do it. So, I mean, I don't know. But, I mean, it, the whole setup with – I mean, Sherman gave Philbin his chance, and now, now I mean, it's – Vice versa, now he's under Philbin. That, that's an uncomfortable situation, in my opinion. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see a a, a, um, a scenario in which Philbin actually tells him what's up. Um, second question is the one we kind of touched on. Do we still get rid of Sherman Philbin Ireland at the end of the season if we go eight and eight or worse? Uh, Philbin's the one I won't say for sure would go if we are a losing record. I think Ireland would definitely be gone. I think Sherman would definitely be gone. Philbin, I 
I don't know. It, it's hard to justify a season and a half into a coach's tenure saying blow it up because it, it usually is a three-year process for a coach to come in, get his players, get his systems established. You have the bad year of the first year, and sometimes you do have that magical first year like Tony Sperano had. But you, you get that first year – the second year, he's really starting to figure it out for himself. And then the third year is where you see what kind of coach he will be. So th- that's part of my issue with saying that we need to blow it all up and get rid of Philbin. Um, and like I've said for probably the last two years on Ireland, there is enough there that if you are going to fire him, I'm not going to say that you're wrong for doing it. I'm, I'm not going to say you should fire him, but I understand why you would fire him and why you would want to move on. And it's the same – it's that way for Philbin right now. I don't think that he needs to be fired, but if you tell me they fire him, I'm going to go, okay, I understand it, and I can kind of agree with that. Oh, exactly. And the trick to all of this – but if he stays and they get rid of Ireland, it becomes more difficult to hire a general manager if you place limitations on a guy can't get rid of Joe Philbin because most general managers want to come in and they want to turn it into their own sort of uh, kit, you know, where they get to bring in all the guys they want and they want to stack it up the way they can. Uh, So you're kind of limiting yourself in terms of candidates. If you're, if you're already coming out of the gate and telling them that they can't get the the head coach stays. So then I think that could also be, I also think that could be a very very honestly be a reason that Ireland stays another year is simply because Ross doesn't want to have to turn around and blow the whole thing up and start all over. And he, he wants to give Philbin a chance to prove what he is exactly. And it, it, you don't get rid of the GM to bring in a guy and say, well, we hired the coach for you. It's, it's backwards the way it should be. And we've already done the, fire the coach, keep the GM, and it's so it, it's a very weird situation when you have to turn over the, the, the front office coaching staff. So it's either an all-or-nothing thing, I think. If I'm and, Ross, at the end of the year, I would you – know, You're breaking up. The thing is, maybe it's me, maybe it's on my end, but I did not hear what you said. I would have to tan it all about it if I'm Ross at the end of the season. If I'm leaning toward That's, maybe getting rid of yeah. Sheldon – or Ireland, I'm talking to, I mean, the guy's the face of your franchise right now. I would talk to him and just be like, is this something, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, we need to talk about your development, too. I mean, to be a leader anyway, and hell we're talking about. So, I mean, now, one, of the like, I mean that one of the other options that could happen is you fire Ireland as the scapegoat in the Martin Incognito mess, and you either make Donna Ponte the general manager and try to keep Brian Gain as the assistant, or you promote Brian Gain up there, who is another guy who he's gotten notoriety. He's somebody that is known in the front offices. I don't know if he's ready to be a GM. He's not somebody whose name is necessarily out there as a possible GM, but he's obviously somebody who is known, which is why the Dolphins promoted him to assistant general manager, so that way nobody else could come and poach him. Um so th- there are ways to do it where you fire Ireland, keep Philbin, and essentially keep the same 
cohesion in the front office. So there are options out there. I don't. I think Gain has learned a lot from Philbin or uh, from Ireland. I mean, but I don't think he's necessarily Ireland. So I, I think that there are ways to do it. It would be interesting. I, I don't know. Um, third question, and Duke, I'll get you in on this one because this is a draft question, so the two of you can talk it. Uh, are we still drafting offensive line with our first few picks? I'll, I'll, I'll absolutely say yes there, and these are all pocket aces questions still. Uh, and the second half of that is, when will we address linebacker? Is it something we address early in the draft? Those kinds of things. My thoughts here, and then I'll turn it over to you two, are that with the money we spent on linebacker this past year, it's not something we're addressing with a number one pick or anything like that. We're writing out these guys for another year. Offensive line, we're going to hit that uh, you know, yeah. very heavy in the draft. You know, it's, it, it, looking at it right now, you're talking about at best, in my opinion, at best uh, three guys returning, replacing Martin and Incognito. And if Tyson Clavo has kind of stepped up a little bit since he got benched, so um, that may be a, a fallback option. But you're looking at it in most scenarios, three new offensive linemen. Um, <clears throat> Worst-case scenario is replacing all five, actually. But you're not doing that in one draft. You'd have to get some free agents and so on and so forth. But, um, yeah, you're looking at tackle most likely in the first round um, and uh, probably tackle in the second or third round. Um, you know, so, somewhere in that range. I think, you know, I think we're going to – I think a new coaching staff will kind of use some of the players we got. I mean, I don't think Nate Garner's bad uh, at guard. I think he can be effective. Um, you know, what really surprised me was um, how that Sam Brenner got the start over Dallas Thomas, and then I saw the goal line play in which Daniel Thomas scored, and then it made sense. Is that the coaching staff is so uh, bent on making Dallas Thomas a tackle? But they don't yes. use him in probably the position he is best at, and that's guard. That's why Sam Brenner got the start. And people right. say, well, he's the third one draft pick. Why didn't he get the start? Well, he's not practiced at guard. They're not playing him at guard. I mean, that's just like saying, let's, let's play Tyson Claybo at left guard. And what, you know, right. That's not his position. They're not pra- they're practicing. Sam Brenner is practicing there in, 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 in training camp. He's practiced there in, in practice every week with a scout team or whatever else. He's familiar with that. They're not using Dallas Thomas as a guard. That's why he. That's why he only got the one snap. I think it was more interesting but, that Danny Watkins didn't go in than that Dallas Thomas didn't go in. I, yeah, and I mean he he was a. I mean maybe that I mean a guy like Brenner. I mean I think uh, pro football focus grading was barely right below zero. He's like minus oh four, so that's not bad. Yeah. The guy that was on the practice floor. So I think we can get some mileage out of the guys that we have. I think we're definitely going to go after some tackles in the draft. But I think the new coaching staff will look at this and say, all right, I've got this guy, Dallas Thomas, who has played tackle and could probably play decent tackle, but he's best fit as a guard. We're going to put him at left guard. We'll put him at the uh, – let's say we keep McKinney, which I think that's a possibility. So you keep a, you keep a veteran in McKinney to play left tackle. You have Dallas Thomas in there. We'll keep penalty, you know, draft, draft a tackle, draft a guard. That's your, you put Nate Garner at right guard, 
draft right tackle, and, and that could be your starting offensive line next year. And that's not bad. You could do worse. Um, but I think uh, I think depending you know, if we make the playoffs, um, and it all depends. It's, it's so hard to say what, how the draft's going to play out because, like I said, last year at this time we were talking about Lane Johnson being a second round, a second round steal for us, uh, and then uh, you know, he, he becomes the fourth overall pick. So uh, I think he's going to have to watch some tape on uh, some guys that uh, that could be there in the in the part of the first round where we will be drafting that. Um, <clears throat> you know, assuming we don't lose every game from here on out and finish five and eleven, uh, you know, even if we finish eight and eight or seven and nine again, I think we're going to be in good shape to get some uh, get a good left tackle prospects. So, but yeah, I think Dolphins fans should should just go ahead and, and prepare themselves for that. And I understand the kind of the trepidation there because that's kind of how this whole Ireland match got started. They went with Jake Long over Matt Ryan and things like that. But when you look at it, you know, like he said, I think we have our quarterback in place. So we have a guy we just need to be able to protect. And we've got playmakers on the outside, and we've got Wallace out there being overpaid. Uh, so, you know, you're not going to draft the, with that kind of money involved. You're just not going to draft a first-round receiver. You know, of course, this coaching staff minus the inch all year, so who knows. Um, but, yeah, I think, I, I, I think with the quarterback in place, uh, with another position in place, I think back is the way to go. And I think that's what we're going to see. I think we're going to see at least two, uh, at most four offensive linemen drafted. Um, to, to go down real quick, uh, Beaver had some questions in here. I'll pick out a couple of them just because he asked three or four. Uh, can we turn – Jordan into a linebacker. I know, Keith, you briefly touched on that. It, it's very possible he ends up there. And if we go to a 3-4, it makes so much sense for him to be a outside linebacker. But I, I think that you very much so could see him that. He, he, he's he been on the field more than we realize sometimes because he'll line up at linebacker and not at defensive end. There were a few plays where Twitter was exploding last week of, why didn't we see, or why isn't Jordan on the field? But he was because he was lined up at middle linebacker and blitzing from there, essentially. So it, it very much so could become Jordan is a linebacker. And with the way he is built right now, I think that probably makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that next year he probably does become the every-down defensive end because they'll have a year where they can just bulk him up because remember, besides the Oregon thing, he also had the shoulder injury this year. So even when when a normal offensive lineman or defensive end or anybody drafted out of one of those quarter, quarter system schools, when he can't be at the team facility, he's still able to go to the gym and lift. Deion Jordan couldn't do that because he had the shoulder injury and was coming back off the surgery. So that he will be able to bulk up this year. And it's something very hard to do in season. It's something that you have to do during the off season. So expect him to come in stronger, bigger, heavier next year. And he'll probably be a defensive end if we're still in the four three. But he absolutely has the skills to be a linebacker. And you could see him go that way too. I I, I couldn't say for sure one way or the other. I think that you're gonna see him probably play more linebacker this year the rest of the season. Because I do think that the team that the Dolphins are going to try to get him on the field more, um, 
against Carolina, I don't know. They could use him as a spy. They could use him on tight end coverage. But it is a team that likes to try to pound the ball at you. And obviously the coaches don't like having him on the field in that situation. So I don't know. You guys' thoughts, Keith? I know that uh, you, you like the well, idea of him being a linebacker. I was still waiting to weigh in on the, the draft thing you guys are talking about. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, he's on. Um, see how I don't let you talk? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, he um, Jordan is considerably faster than most 4-3 outside linebackers you find in the sport right now. I mean, I think he ran a 4-6 right around that. I mean, if an outside guy is running in the 4-7, 4-8, that's fine. I mean, he's got out, unbelievable length for the position. But the thing is, I mean, he wouldn't be just your everyday uh, weak side outside linebacker anyway. I mean, you can use him in that Von Miller rule. I mean, you can go ahead and blitz him off the edge. But the thing is, uh, uh, he's perfectly at home in coverage. So, I mean, I don't, I don't see any re- any problem with uh, using him at linebacker. It's not like, uh, I mean, Von Miller went number two overall. DeAndre went number three overall. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not like you you take a guy that high and it's a bad thing if you're using him at outside linebacker. That's perfectly fine. And he's athletic enough to do it, and he's got uh, he's got uh, rare athleticism for that p- position anyway. So I mean, why not? I mean, cash in. Yeah, my quick take on that is, uh, if Rob Ryan is our coach, he'll turn Deion Jordan into an All Star, Pro Bowl, or whatever you call it. Right. Beaver also goes on. He he's looking at Larry Fitzgerald, trying to find a way to somehow get Larry Fitzgerald to Miami whether it would be a trade involving Mike Wallace, which I, I know, James, you talked about it in there, that th- there's no way to trade Mike Wallace right now just because the money is so uh, ridiculous for him that y- you're not going to eat that cap hit. Um, I did look it up real quick also. Uh, for the linebackers, it would cost for both, um, for both guys, for Ellerby and Wheeler, it would cost $4 million more next year to get rid of them than to keep them. So you're absolutely going to see those guys end up staying because nobody wants to pay $4 million to let somebody walk away. I don't know what you're talking about. What? They're cap or Hmm? Kidding. Oh. I'm sorry. I, you came in broken again, so I only got like half your what you were saying. Mm-hmm. But um, I'll give it over to you guys. We're we're a little over 90 minutes on the show right now, so turn it over to you guys. Let you guys have final thoughts. Anything on your mind, uh, Keith? Oh, I get to go first. Yes, you get to go first because I cut you off on the draft thing. Yeah, which is uh, actually I'll bring in my own draft thing. Uh, Evil Mike Tomlin on Twitter tweeted earlier that Johnny Manziel will reveal NFL decision as soon as he finds out what the hookers are like in Jacksonville. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so and you'll appreciate you'll appreciate this There's, one. Uh, Jeff Ireland prostitution jokes involved in there somewhere. Oh, oh yeah, I'm sure. Uh, this you'll enjoy this one. This is from Bill Walton. This is arguably my favorite guy on Twitter. He said, "Spurs are that team 
of old, overweight guys in the gym with back hair and knee pads. They look bad, but before you know it, they beat you 11-3. to 3. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> that's so about that right. kind of cracked me I, up. I'll there. take that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So uh, is that the end of your, your, your thoughts for the night? Yes. Okay. Duke, the, 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 the second time dad. Yeah, um, I'm interested to see what, how, how this game is going to go. I mean, uh, a lot of stuff I'm reading here, people are expecting the Panthers to, to win easy because they are a, a better team at this point. But uh, I can also see this being a letdown game. And one of my uh, good friends who's a big Panthers fan, he says that uh, he said that that was their Super Bowl. He said that was their yep. um, that that was the game that they wanted to. to Put themselves on the map. Say, look, we are, we're here to. We're not just a flash in the pan. We're going to be reckoned with. And I could really see this being kind of a letdown game. Considering I think I don't know the rest of their schedule, but I do know they have at least one. Uh, they have both games with the Saints coming up. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that's who they play right after, right after the Dolphins. But they do have some, uh, do have some big games there. So I, I could really see this being kind of the, the trap game where they're not putting as much focus on, on the Dolphins because they put so much on the Patriots, and they do have to play the Saints, which they will be fighting for that division. So um, I, I think we can really – hopefully we can catch them uh, catch them napping a little bit, not putting as much effort into this game. And, uh, you know, you know, giving ourselves uh, – giving the Dolphins a chance to, you know, put themselves squarely in that playoff hunt. And, the, and, and about that, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I was watching the – Jets Bills game uh, Sunday, and if you know people complain about Ryan Tannehill, before you complain about Ryan Tannehill, go back, uh, find some way to buy NFL game rewind, whatever you have to do, and watch that game, and, and watch Geno Smith, and then come back and tell me Ryan Tannehill's a bad quarterback. I uh, the the a great thing that I heard um, this week, I can't take credit for it. I, I read it somewhere. Um, was uh, Geno Smith is such a bad quarterback that the coach that kept Mark Sanchez benched him. That should tell you something about Geno Smith. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the, the worst play of that game. Was he, he tries to float out like a little screen pass, and the linebacker just picks it off and runs the end zone. It, it was just. It was just one of those days, and um, yeah, I hate that it was the Bills that actually beat them. You know, somebody the Jaguars or somebody, but still, it was just it was it was it was fun to watch because it was fun watching the Jets get beat. But it was still not, uh, you know, you watch that and you watch, you know, people find oh, Tannehill's not you know, hitting the hitting the deep pass or he's missing this pass or that. I'm like, it could be a lot worse, and by a lot worse, I mean a lot worse. So. Did you Just did you see the stat where uh, the Jets have, haven't won consecutive games this season? Yeah, they're, they're, they have alternated wins losses, um, and we get them we they, get them on the weeks we get that them on they the would have. Yeah, yes. we we have them on the loss weeks. Thank you. By yes. week both both games puts the they, they were losing on even, winning on odd until the bye week. The bye week pushes them the opposite direction, so they will 
win on even weeks, lose on odd weeks now, and we have them in week 13 and 17. So, so that's uh, losses on both games, if they stick to that plan. Um, my, my last thought of the day – oh, James, do you have anything? I, forget, I forgot that you were on here, James, because you've been quiet for so long. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, no, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Go back to being quiet now. <laughs> um, my, my final thought is if you guys have not watched this video, please go out there. Um, it's on South Florida Sun Sentinel right now. It's a YouTube video, so if you search for Channing Crowder's name, uh, Channing Crowder decided to open his mouth again. And whenever Channing Crowder opens his mouth, usually it's entertaining things. Most of the time when he was playing, we were getting frustrated by it. But he, he usually will come up with some entertaining things. He decided on ESPN, I guess it was, to detail how he would urinate on himself during every single game of his career. And I don't know what made him decide that this was the story he wanted to tell. I don't know at what point he went, why am I talking about this, if he ever did, but it's... Channing Crowder being Channing Crowder and talking about how he wet his pants every game. So that's my final thought. That's a former Dolphin out there talking, telling you how he peed himself every single game of his career. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna, before, we, before we wrap up, I, I want to point out something there that you know, throughout this incognito Martin mess, people have said, you know, well, they, they try to compare – the NFL locker room and the NFL in general to everyday, ordinary, real life stuff. And, and I understand that there are some some things that you know laws and things that that go there. But I, I love it when I when I read a comment by somebody and they say, "Oh, that would never fly in my office." Uh, you know, and then you go up and you see a video like that, or you see that video where where John Henderson has a a. Uh, one of the training staff basically punch him in the face before a game to get ready, where guys go out there and, and defensive players would would purposely uh, puke on the ball right before the snap. I mean, it, it's it's not the same as when you go to your office every day or whatever you do for a living. So please stop that comparison. Yeah, there's some things that you know harassment and there's laws and stuff involved, but yeah, it's it's a different world. Yeah, people yeah, in the office don't shower true. together. Great point. Yeah. No, I mean, no, nobody's office involves people peeing on themselves every week. (laughs) Still not as as bad as Moises Aloup peeing on his hands. Moises Aloup peed on his hands. I didn't know that. How are you? You have to be the only person alive who hasn't heard of that story. I've never heard that story. Interesting. I've never heard that story. You never have. I'm not alone. No. Moises Alou, when he played with the Cubs, admitted that uh, to kind of like toughen up his hands, callus wise, for because uh, you know he used to bat without gloves, and uh, he said that he would toughen up his hands by peeing on him in the shower. So there you go. Huh. Well, that's a special plan. Um, I guess it worked for him. Uh, <laughs> don't really know what to say to that. So on that note, <laughs> as we end tonight's Finsider podcast talking about peeing on yourself, 
Uh, everybody have a good night. Hopefully uh, we're talking about another Dolphins win next week. And don't know if Finsider TV will be back. Finsider TV was not here this week, which typically means it's going to be a loss. So I kind of blame you guys. But uh, well, <laughs> the, Tampa, the Tampa Bay game broke the streak, so it doesn't matter anymore. That's true. That's true. So, um, <laughs> but you guys have a good night. Uh, Dolphins fan for life, thank you for calling in. And uh, everybody, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week to talk some more Dolphins football. And we'll see where we are with the Jonathan Martin and uh, Richie Incognito mess. Because maybe we'll talk that too. Everybody have a good night. Good night. Now at O'Reilly Auto Parts, pick up a bottle of Seafoam Motor Treatment on sale for $7.99. Plus, earn double O Rewards points. Help your engine run smoother and last longer with Seafoam Motor Treatment on sale now at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Limit supplies. See store for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey everybody, it's Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else you listen to podcasts check it out most of the time we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like google meta and apple but some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person when you're working on your own i think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it then in that moment you don't have to have permission from someone else there's no red tape in the vergecast series solo acts We'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of like afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. Hello, I'm Nilay Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts.